0: We have to put the names of the talks we're giving sometimes many many months in advance, and so I gave the name um, "Don't Make Anything!" exclamation point. And uh, now I have to figure out what that means. <laughs> uh, at the at the time, I still think it's a good idea. I'm going to do a few more of them. What I wanted to do is to take uh, themes that uh, a number of the teachers that I work with who have been very very helpful to me used and uh, they're not responsible for what I say about these themes but uh, the first teacher that I had of Buddha Dharma some of you know is a, a Korean Zen master named Sung San and uh, he used this phrase from time to time it was never a whole talk we just sprinkle it here and there don't make anything and uh, i found it very very helpful over the years and uh, i spent five rather intensive years in his company here and in, in japan and korea and uh, when i left i left as a, we left as friends he gave me a calligraphy which uh, said don't make anything exclamation point, only go straight for the next ten thousand years. Try, try, try. He had a limited vocabulary <laughs> <laughs> but he uh he got uh, he got everything said. he didn't need many words. Uh, if there are any of you who have ever heard him in action, uh, now he has more words. I think he was better when he had fewer words actually. <laughs> It's a kind of safeguard. So don't make anything. Sometimes you would say, don't make anything. If you don't make anything, then you can have everything. Have everything. Um, He was the one who uh, initiated me into a certain way of giving Dharma talks. Have any of you been here when George Bowman has given Dharma talks? No. George and I trained with him, and um, for better or for worse, he initiated a certain style of giving Dharma talk, which sometimes I wished I had not agreed to go along with, uh, which is, if you have a theme or uh, what you're going to talk about, that's fine. But um, he said it's like playing jazz. So you have your theme and what he would ask is that you trust your, what he called, don't know mind. In other words, the meditative mind. Just get quiet and so you mention your theme. As you can see, I'm stalling a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And so you start blowing these notes and although you have a theme, you don't fully know how it's going to turn out. And so the whole point is to stay uh, alert and awake and have faith that uh, something will come out of whatever this is uh, that's relevant to the theme. Well, it does, but uh, at some cost, emotionally, because... and, and at some cost, I think, for you. Uh, it's good because it's spontaneous, so it has a freshness. But there's also a certain amount of anxiety that accompanies it sometimes, <laughs> like when you have nothing to say. <laughs> Um, Also, you leave out a lot of important things. So it's, uh, in a certain way, much more elegant to just get your talk ready, have an outline, Roman numeral one, A, B, C, Roman numeral two, one, two, three, however you do it. And it's all there. But, you know, I've talked about the Four Noble Truths and only covered three of them, you know. (laughs) So once you get going, uh, it has a lot of spontaneity, but... Content is a little <laughs> wanting or lacking, uh, but he insisted on it. I mean, in a very, and I understand what he what he's trying to do, and so doing that's so that's how um, George as well, George Bowman as well. Uh, let me give you a feeling for uh, this. Um, don't make anything. There's a uh, a teaching story about a. A Chinese master named Laman Uh this was in ancient China, and the whole family uh, were enlightened according to this story. Uh, apparently, they were reasonably wealthy, and uh, they started practicing, and they put all their belongings on a houseboat and sank it in the middle of the Yangtze River. Uh, and then just, they weren't monks or nuns, but they lived almost that way. And someone asked Layman Pong, um, he had heard good things about this meditation practice, and he said, Can you tell me something about it? And Layman Pong said, Oh, it's very difficult. It's like trying to hit the moon with a stick. The person was taken aback. He went to Layman's Pong Layman Pong's wife, who was also enlightened, and he said, uh, can you tell me something about this practice? And she said, Oh, it's nothing to it. It's just easy. It's like touching your face while you're washing your face in the morning. So he felt a little bit better. But he was a little confused now, so he went to the sun, And the sun was also enlightened. <laughs> and the son said, uh, well, you know, your father says it's difficult, and your mother says it's easy. I'm confused. And the son said, um, it's not difficult, it's not easy. <laughs> Thanks big help (laughs) so in a desperate uh, state he went to the daughter who was also enlightened of course (laughs) i mean i wasn't there but that's the story and he told her that he was just uh, really confused and she said um, if you make difficult then you have difficult if you make easy then you have easy (coughs) if you don't think then you have no problem." (laughs) you just see truth exactly the way it is and uh, that didn't help him so much but that's the the gist of the story now practically speaking what does this mean the first time I saw its value uh, actually happened uh, I mean I saw it many many times but uh, personally um, I was leading a retreat and someone came in and Uh, In those days, I was a bit more influenced by a certain Burmese style, where uh, some of the Burmese teachers uh, still teach this way, actually. And it has its place, but I don't think it works so well in America, which is when you're working with the breath to try to get concentrated, and they'll ask you, uh, how many times in the last sitting did your mind leave the (coughs) breath? And let's say you say 15, then they might say, cut it down to 10, you know. If you do that here, it becomes another PhD program.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: and everyone goes crazy, so it doesn't work. Or they'll say, when your mind leaves the breath, about how long does it take before you realize that you're not with the breath? And if you say, oh, sometimes it's a minute or two before, you say, cut it down to a minute or 30 seconds. Okay. So um, I stopped, dropped out the cut it down part, but I would still ask people about how many times Did your mind wander away from the breath? And I asked one person, and this person said, I don't remember the numbers, this was a while ago, but they said something like, uh, oh, this last sitting, 20 times within the sitting, my mind wandered away from the breath. It is just so difficult, the sad face. And you know, I try to help the person perk up a little and so forth. And then later on in the retreat, someone else came in, I asked the same question, how's it going? And the person said, uh, and I asked, how many times has your mind wandered from the breath? And they said, oh, it's just going great. It's a wonderful retreat. Uh, Twenty times my mind wandered.
1: <laughs> Twenty times. <laughs> so
0: one person made difficult. The other person made easy. Now, I'm not saying which is best. But later I got to know the person who made difficult, and uh, we explored that one. It doesn't end in the interview room because, let's say, the person makes difficult. This is very difficult. <laughs> then, uh, after the retreat, they run into friends. Well, what are you up to these days? Oh, I'm practicing insight meditation. Well, What's that like? So, Well, it's, it's interesting, but it's very difficult. <laughs> and not only do they, of course, affect that person, but more and more they're creating a psychology for themselves that we can send. And uh, undercuts their resolve. And before you know it, you have no meditator at all, I mean they are somewhere else. So you can see this make, don't make. So if you make difficult, you have difficult. If you make easy, you have easy. Um, in more general sense, what this teaching is saying is that uh, don't use the experiences that, hap- that come from, uh, don't use your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, uh, don't make them into elements of your story. Do you know what I mean by your story? Right? Is everyone clear about that? Our drama. My life. In other words, where we direct, we produce, and we star in that story. (laughs) And it's our story. And it's, of course, the story of me. (laughs) Starring me. With a su- supporting cast of me.
1: <laughs>
0: and all day long it's rehearsing about. I don't know if it ever gets to the actual performance, but there's a lot of rehearsing. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, what do you mean if you make something, you have something? And uh, this teaching is designed to help you uh, not turn the events of your life into elements of that story which, put in other language, uh, feeds and nourishes the sense of ego, sense of separateness, sense of self, a se- sense of me, my meditation practice, and how difficult it is for me. Okay, Let me give you other examples. Uh, this one I've used many, many times. And I know some of you will probably yawn as I use it. But I'm going to keep using it because it is so practical. It's about the weather. and. If you're willing to try it, you'll see it'll help you a lot. Uh, It's about an ancient koan, an ancient teaching. And uh, the student asks the teacher, um, how can you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? And the teacher says something like, hot kills, cold kills. And the student wants to know uh, what to do. And he says, you have to get to a place where hot doesn't kill, hot doesn't where there's no hot and no cold. What in the world are they talking about? What they mean is um, hot and cold are with us now and will be with us forever, don't you think? I mean, I don't think we're going to cure our life situation of hot and cold. That's the way it is. It keeps alternating. Okay. What the teacher is saying is the concept hot kills. And the concept cold kills. If it's hot, that's a fact. This is, let's say, uh, it's a certain temperature. It's 102 degrees. Okay, that's a fact. And that may be uncomfortable and you may be sweating. But then when you make hot out of it, the concept hot, then it's not simply the temperature. Now the psyche has gotten all involved in it and is constructing torment out of it so it's the literal actual temperature that's a fact and then it's the in a sense the what the mind makes out of that and of course who is it that's being subjected to this heat it's our old friend me again (laughs) i'm hot and there's a lot of conversation about it have you noticed and then the weather changed people can't wait for it to down and we whine about cold and we whine about hot and then we have the there's a new breed of professionals you know the weathermen they like uh, cross between a male model and an MIT graduate student some of
1: <laughs> the new ones they're sort of
0: they're getting better and better looking and they sound more and more like scientists and they're uh, giving a feeding this they're talking about hot and cold they're making hot and cold all over the place okay The practice would be to not make hot and to not make cold means you can begin to discern, and this is a bit of insight, the difference between uh, the fact that they're sweating or they're shivering, that that's actually going on, and then you could see what the mind makes out of that. And once you get, uh, you can learn how to do it. And you can see that once the mind gets in on it and starts constructing something out of the temperature, then you have a problem. It's not just discomfort. And so one answer, uh, there have been many answers over the centuries to this question that was uh, posed to the teacher is uh, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. That's the answer to it. The person asks the question and the answer is simply hot Buddha, cold Buddha, which is another way of saying it. It means when it's hot, the Buddha sits and sweats and when it's cold, the Buddha sits and shivers. What else is the Buddha going to do? But that's all. It's just hot. It's just cold, it's just shivering, it's just sweating. There's no emotional uh, melodrama woven out of it about how this is happening to me. So can you see how practical it is? Now put it into action, to start with starting with yourself of course. I'll okay. give you a few other examples. Um, And young. Uh, I've used this example. It actually came out of an interview here because it's so simple and so elegant, and such a good teaching. I think, at least it was for me. Someone comes into an interview, and we start talking. And the person, this is not that long ago here, uh, starts talking about. um, We were talking about the first noble truth, the the truth of suffering, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness in life. And the teaching is, when there is unsatisfactoriness in your life, to know it. It's not saying life is just suffering. It's not uh, eliminating it that way. When there is unsatisfactoriness, the practice would be to know it. And so this person, we were working with that over a period of weeks, uh, said, um, this morning I woke up, my knee was very, very stiff, and I went from sad to depressed about it. I said, why? What's that about? He said, well, I realize I'm getting old. Okay. So if you make old, then you have old. If you make senior citizen, then senior citizen isn't 65. Senior citizen, the the one I'm talking about, uh, has to do with what you just made. You've made yourself into a senior citizen, which doesn't have to be bad either. I mean, it's just a descriptive term. I have a year to go, so I'm, <laughs> I'm on the cusp there. Okay. Um, but what this person is doing, if we look at it very carefully, uh, there's no question that the body must age. Uh, no one would deny that. But does the mind have to age? I'm not talking about the brain. I know things happen to the brain that are, can be quite uh, disastrous and uh, painful. But the mind uh, does not have to age. And so when all that's happening is, when we look carefully at this situation, is uh, you wake up and your knee is stiff. And then the mind takes that piece of that fact, and then it uses it uh, to weave into its story, the story of me getting older, the story of me getting much older, the story of me, of course, finally dying. And so that just that little knee, a little uh, stiffness in the knee. Uh, becomes a stage prop, becomes an element that produces, can produce tremendous torment, not just this, discom- the stiffness is uncomfortable. It might even be a little bit painful. If it's arthritic, of course it can be painful. But what we're talking about is something over and above that, so that whatever the physical reality is, this person made old out of it. And if you make old, then you have old. Okay. The same with illness. Uh, and I I've s- spoken to you about this and uh, in the Thai forest tradition uh, where Michael, Narayan, myself, uh, a lot of the teachings here have been quite influenced by that school. Uh, they're very big on when you get sick and every westerner who goes there gets very sick so it's not even <laughs> when it's I mean it is when it's not if. Uh, so they have it they have a routine already for us. <laughs> And usually, very often, you get very sick. I mean, you can't hold food, dysentery, fever, and so forth. Um, and the teaching is, um, is to hone in. It's uh, that uh, what would the practice of not making anything be like? Let's say when it's hot. To back up a bit, that you're one hundred percent, undividedly attentive to the experience of being hot. Now, when you're that attentive. There's no room for me or mine. The ego, when, you're, when there's that quality of attention, that kind of complete, undivided attention, the momentum of that uh, selfing machine, where the, where the mind is uh, producing all these notions about me and mine, uh, it's not that it's eliminated, but it goes into abeyance. It's not there. And so what it is, is there's no separation. There's an intimate, undivided experience of hot. And it's what it is, just hot. Now, I'm not saying that's wonderful, but it's very different than when, you, when the attention weakens and suddenly uh, all the thoughts come pouring in. Of course, the main thought is being me and mine. When that comes pouring in, and then suddenly you have I'm hot. And then it's a totally different experience. <coughs> so the challenge is uh, to be have that quality of attention. Now, those who've been practicing, you know that one of the things we're developing is this samadhi or the ability to put our attention someplace and to keep it there uh, for as long as we wish. And that's not limited to the breathing. The breathing is a good training object, metta is a good training, really everything is. Paying attention to how you wash the dishes, all the things we suggest uh, that we do here, uh, helps develop that quality of unwavering, an unwavering uh, capacity to attend. Uh, and the experience of working with unpleasant states, which is, for most of us, I, I think all of us, perhaps the most difficult thing to learn. That is to uh, establish a friendly relationship with states of mind and body that we don't want uh, to be there. And so these, these are two of the main things you're learning if you come to this place. One, how to calm and concentrate the mind on something simple like the breathing, relatively. And the other is... Um, to not uh, freak out when your experience isn't what you want it to be, but to be able to um, just be there with it and to experience unpleasantness or loneliness or sorrow, etc. Now, uh, this teaching is getting at that because if you're able to do that 100% in an undivided way, it's a totally different experience. When it's deep enough, it's called enlightenment. When the Buddha is sitting and sweating and the Buddha is sitting and shivering, and there's absolutely no reverberation. The mind is not making anything out of it. That's freedom. Because when you hear that the teachings are about suffering and the end of suffering, it doesn't mean that there won't be pain in life. How could that be? That would be a, a, you should all, If that were our teaching, you should all clear out of here, because we're just <laughs> selling you some nonsense. But it doesn't have to be torment. Torment's different. It's what the mind builds up out of the inevitable uh, pain that one must go through if you have a body. There's no way around that. Okay. So uh, I hope the pra- that the practice is getting clear and you can see perhaps the value of, uh, of don't make anything. So with illness, uh, it's the same. Uh, can you uh, fully be with the... Uh, The physicality of it. That is, whatever the body is going through, uh, the particular, if it's fever, if it's uh, pain uh, within the body somewhere, whatever it is for you at that time, can there be undivided attention to it. Now that attention, in order for you not to make it into anything, has to be a quality of attention that's not trying to fix anything. You're not trying to improve upon anything. You're not trying to rid yourself of it. You're not trying to hold it Hold on to it longer. Uh, you're just allowing it to be a natural process, and you're learning how to enter into it in an intimate way. And of course, uh, that's an art that uh, is that e- difficult or easy, I ask you. No one wants to answer? OK. <laughs> uh,
1: it's pretty hard. It's <laughs> pretty
0: hard? 20 blows. <laughs> um, actually the truth is we do use hard and easy in different ways as well uh, depending like sometimes if a person's struggling and trying so hard we try to soften things and we might say you know it's not that difficult and that's a kind of an expedient an attempt to help that particular person so there's always uh in other words everything that i'm saying is not really true I mean, it's not—it's not absolutely true. It's kind of true, sort of. Okay. Um, see if we can find any other examples. Well, I think it's probably getting across to you. Uh, what else shouldn't we make? Um, the key here is that uh, capacity to be with the way it is. Uh, that ability to. Uh, not tamper so much with life, uh, to not try to engineer things so that they become what you wanted them to become, but rather to surrender uh, to the illness. It doesn't mean to not do something about it. Let's say if there are medical things to do, of course, you do that, and then uh, and then you then it's practice. The practice. It's not that the illness interferes with our ability to practice, because the illness is the practice. That's an important one, it's hard to grasp. If only I didn't feel so sick, I could really meditate. No, the sickness is the practice. That's the, so that you're moving with it, including perhaps how discouraged you feel. And if you have low energy, then you practice like someone with low energy. Uh, When I was in Korea with the same teacher, uh, it was almost a month, there were three of us, and we just couldn't hold our food. Uh, we had dysentery. It was becoming like a nightmare. And there, were, there was talk of maybe we should go home. And I uh, went in and had an interview with, at the time, a 94-year-old uh, teacher. He was carried in uh, to the Dharma Hall by four monks and then carried out. He couldn't walk anymore and he was uh, couldn't see too well, but his mind was really very, very crisp. And so I told him my, my practice then was, Uh, The question, what am I? You ask this question, not just verbally, sometimes verbally, but mainly without words, just deeply inquiring, what am I? And then you you look and you listen. It's a way of getting observation going. And you do it, and it can get quite fierce and intense. And I was so weak. Uh, And I told him that. And I said, uh, I couldn't do it. It was just very hard. And then he said something interesting. He said, uh, you still have the memory of how you did this practice when you were strong. Uh, you're not strong now. You're weak. You have dysentery. And so it—it it isn't the practice isn't, what am I? Because they would often talk that way to kind of inspire you to do it. You would say, it's, what am I? What am I?
1: <laughs>
0: you can see he still had some, some marbles going. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it was true. In, other words, if you, uh, in that sense, you uh, adapt to the situation. And the situation is you don't have very much energy. But that doesn't mean that you can't practice. It means just that you have to practice like someone who has very little energy. And once you stop fighting, uh, the, the fight is actually between how you should be, which is based on how you were when you were healthy, and how you should be now, and you're not that way. Once you let see through that and let it go, then you don't squander energy on trying to be something that you can't be. And then it's possible to really do something worthwhile with your illness and with the time. Okay. Don't make anything. One that comes up uh, fairly often here and at IMS is people, after they've been practicing for a while, I think it's still the honeymoon phase, but it's a very... Um, positive aspect of the honeymoon phase. In other the person, really, I really love the Dharma. I love insight meditation. I love this practice. I love IMS. I love CIMC. A lot of love, you know. And, you know, you know down deep, well, we'll see in six months or a year. But, okay. Uh, but then the person will, this happens often. Perhaps it's happened to you. It certainly happened to me. You make Dharma student, or Vipassana yogi, or meditator, you make that. And then, if you make that, then you have basically the rest of the world who are not that. In other words, it's a world of non-meditators, have you noticed? (laughs) So, virtually everyone out there is not meditating. And then, you have this problem of uh, this world where people are noisy, and inconsiderate, and insensitive, and loud, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And here am I, the uh, poor, sincere, devoted practitioner, trapped in this ugly, brutal, noisy, loud, meat-eating world.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so, some, in effect, to use the language we're playing with tonight, it would be, don't make Vipassana yogi. Don't make Dharma practitioner. In other words, to really be an insight meditator, you have to throw insight meditation out. In other words, the person has made themselves into a something. I'm a Vipassana meditator. In parenthesis, sensitive, devoted, <laughs> higher values, spiritually oriented, kind, compassionate, and wise. No one will come out blatantly say that, but that's... Or at least that's the promise. You know, If I just listen to those people over there and follow enough breaths and do enough lifting, moving, placing, I will be like that. Otherwise, why would you come if there isn't some profit to be turned? Okay. So in order to really do the practice, you have to see that you've made Vipassana meditation. And that's the problem. So you have to, in order to really practice Vipassana, you have to throw it out. Then you're really practicing. And I hope this isn't confusing to the really new people.
1: <laughs>
0: in other words, to really do it, you have to stop doing it. Does that make it even clearer? Yeah. <laughs> that was cruel. Okay. (laughs) I'll make it a little bit more uh, accessible. Uh, The ego will uh, dress up as anything you want it to dress up as. If you like Vipassana meditator, fine. It has no... It's shameless. (laughs)
1: It
0: it will become a Vipassana meditator. And it will become very uh, holy in a world of uh, vulgarity and, you know, mundane values, okay. but it's the same old ego. So the practice would be to see that. You've made that. You've made that out of just this. The practice itself is just a practice. It's just sitting and following the breath. It's being aware of your emotional state, of your bodily condition, of the mind, doing walking meditation, eating mindfully, etc. Uh, etc. That's, that's what it is. That in itself is not a problem. I mean, it maybe you have to do it, and it takes some effort, But then we take that function and we make a status out of it. I'm a Zen student. I'm a Vipassana student. I'm a Tibetan Vajrayana student. You know, it's endless. Whatever you want. We've done it before. We know how to do it really well. And so now we do it with this. It's the same. Nothing has changed. So all I'm really saying is, once you see through that, then you're just doing the meditation, the function of meditating, without turning yourself into a meditator. Capital M quotation marks around it with italics. Is that, is that clear? Okay, yeah. so what finally have we been saying? Um, the deepest meaning is all of them, if you go closely enough, is really only one thing that I've been saying the whole time. Is don't make me or mine. That is, what the mind keeps doing is uh, things happen to it in life. That is, as we uh, move through life, this uh, sense of self um, nourishes itself uh, on whatever's happening and it will turn it into uh, nutriment to either make itself seem wonderful or awful. I mean, you can also make awful. If you make awful, then you have awful. If you make wonderful, you have wonderful. The practice is don't make anything. I mean it's just because if you don't make anything, that means you're ah let me connect this with the the gift that Sansanin gave me. He said (laughs) don't make anything. (coughs) Only go straight for 10,000 years. Okay, what does this only go straight for 10,000 years? What in the world is he talking about? It's hyperbole, you know, and it's more in Mahayana Buddhism, where, you know, 12,000 billion eons ago, uh, we were this and that. It means a lot. You know, it means (laughs) really do it. Uh, What does it mean to go straight? Think of a track, of a train. When you're on the Dharma track, the Dharma track uh, is such that you're not making anything out of anything. That is, you're being aware of exactly what's happening. You're fully in touch with your experience as you have the experience. That is, as we live out our life, we humans have this wonderful, remarkable capacity to be aware of it. In the process of living, we can also be sensitive to the living as we do it. It's quite a extraordinary ability that we have, and it can be developed if you practice it. That means you're not making anything out of anything. You're just intimate with your experience as you live through life. In one breath, if suddenly you get caught up in something and you make it into something, that means the ego suddenly grasps onto something and uses it, appropriates it, to deepen its sense of being a solid, enduring self. In that moment, the train has gone off the Dharma track and now it's on the mind track. And then you see it. And then it falls away and then you're awake again. Uh, and now you're back on the Dharma track. And our life is kind of going on this train, going from one track to another. In a certain sense, when we're on the mind track, it's like a dream in, day, in daytime. Because uh, what's happening is we're imagining what's happening. What is happening is thought is what what thought does is it jumps out in front of us and it tells us what's happening and then it runs back and hides (laughs) as if it had nothing to do with it (laughs) And then we think we're talking about absolute reality and truth Uh, Well, what do you mean it's it's this way. It's difficult. Oh, no, that's it's just difficult. Let's face it Well, what do you mean? That's a concept difficult easy or easier, whatever else you want to talk about. Thought throws it out as if this is the way it is and then runs back, hides, and then you think you're talking about the truth, where really it's more opinions. Uh, it's based on your conditioning. It's based on your accumulated knowledge, a lifetime of study, and you know, everything that has happened to you. Okay, it's not clear seeing. Very close to what don't make anything is the term beginner's mind, don't know mind, freshness, innocence, Empty mind, silent mind, a lot of terms for it. They're all really the same. Now in that mind, uh, the mind is not cluttered with self-centeredness. The self-principle is not uh, in charge. And so what is there instead is clarity. Uh, The mind is very, very clear. It's very clear because you are not there. As soon as you get back into it, you're seeing through the lens of you. You is your conditioning, your history, your psychological entanglements, your likes and your dislikes. And it's through that that we look at each other, images that we have. Don't make anything would definitely apply to that, self-images. We're more concerned with having high self-esteem, getting rid of low self-esteem, having a positive self-image instead of a negative self-image. That's fine. Relatively speaking, but the Dharma track is to go beyond all of that. If you go from a, a negative self-image to a positive self-image, uh, do you think that's a very sturdy house to live in? <coughs> Maybe it is for you. I haven't found it to be so. It's just an image. It's all it is. It's an image which we've invested with a sense of truth, because thought is that powerful, and we worship it. It's the supreme addiction, I think, thought. Um, so when we see through that, then we're clear again. Then we're on the Dharma track. And so when San Sanim is saying, only go straight, uh, he means keep the mind that decided to practice. There's so many different mind states that we can get caught in. But there's definitely one that brought you here tonight, right? I mean, you may have other reasons, but I assume at least one mind state got you to come here, and that mind state has to do with either doing the practice or perhaps for new people wanting to see, is this something that I want to do, find out. But that mind state is not concerned with perpetuating what you've already been doing, because if that was so wonderful, why would we be here? We wouldn't need this joint. We really wouldn't, because we just keep doing everything we're already doing in the way that we've been doing it. Why look for something new? Just a need for novelty, maybe? But I don't think so. Heavy duty. (laughs) Uh, Now I have to say it's easy. Don't make difficult, it's... (laughs) To practice a piece of cake, it's very, very easy. So you can see that we have uh, within our own capability uh, our own happiness. That is, how we come to view things uh, has everything to do with our own happiness, how we relate to objects of our experience. Uh, the practice is learning. There is a message that comes with this teaching. Those of you who have been here for a while, probably you, you've gotten it, which is that we're responsible for our own happiness. No teacher can really uh, do, it, do it for us. No one can. And what it's saying is, whatever your condition is, and in this practice, you start exactly where you are. That's the perfect place to practice and to start. You know why? Because there's no other choice. Where are you going to start? Is some place where you aren't? Where would that be? So we're stuck with, this is the way it is for us. So let's flip it around and make it a virtue. I'm a jerk, but now I'm going to be a conscious jerk. (laughs) And somehow, if we're willing to do that, uh, it leads us somewhere. Okay, I think uh, that's pretty much all. I've uh, shown my appreciation to Sansanim. I hope he feels it over in Korea. He's still alive and we still correspond.